welcome to the Plant-Based Canada podcast. Join us as we talk with experts to explore the field of nutritional sciences and how our food choices impact our health and the environment. We sit down with Canadian doctors, dietitians, athletes, climate experts, and more to break down the evidence behind a whole foods plant-based diet and discuss the practical steps you can take in your effort to shift toward a healthier lifestyle. Dr. Ian Gillespie is a consultant psychiatrist with a practice in his hometown of Victoria since completing specialty training at UBC and Mayo Clinic. His role at Aroga Lifestyle Medicine is to provide consultation services to his team and assessments focusing on the role of how adverse childhood experience, ADHD, and PTSD may contribute to the chronic illness people have experienced over the years. He also provides compassionate, motivational interviewing concepts, CHIP training principles, and current information about the evolving field of lifestyle psychiatry treatment. He's also passionate about the role diet plays in mental health and mood, and is a proponent of a whole foods, plant-based eating pattern. With continuing education in lifestyle medicine in 2013, he was among the first seven physicians in Canada to earn the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine Diplomat Certification in the 2017 inaugural examination. Dr. Gail Espy, thank you so much for joining the Plant-Based Canada podcast. We're excited to have you on the show, and I'm personally excited to get into this topic with you. We haven't had anyone on the show with this expertise yet. You're most welcome, Clint, and I appreciate the opportunity. Let's get started then. So first, I want to know um, how you grew up and what got you interested in psychiatry. My late father was a pediatrician, and I'm the eldest of four siblings. Several of my parents' good friends were psychiatrists. My father's work involved interactions with families and my parents modeled respectful communication. Uh, My hobbies as a youngster were more technically focused such as electronics and photography, which still continues to be the case. By taking summer schools, I was able to complete pre-med in two years. And although I was interested in cardiology and biomedical electronics, when I did the rotations in psychiatry, I enjoyed those and applied for a residency position at uh, UBC in Vancouver. Halfway through my residency, there was quite a bit of turmoil in the department, including the firing of the department head. One of my best clinical supervisors advised me to apply elsewhere. He said, otherwise people will think that you don't know anything other than what they taught you. That made a lot of sense to me and I applied to three other programs. And I then completed my residency at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And that included some time in neurology and EEG, intensive group psychotherapy, and the inpatient treatment of addiction. After that, I returned to Victoria, and I've been back here since 1976. About every five years, I've tended to change my clinical focus a little. This has included being psychiatric director of a ward in a general hospital, leading an intensive group psychotherapy program, developing intervention programs for impaired physicians, eating disorder programs, better treatment for those with borderline personality disorder, a brief time at a youth forensic psychiatric clinic, and computerized assessment of ADHD and traumatic brain injury. I closed my office practice when the lease ended in 2011 with expectations of retirement. I was later recruited to work for two years at a military mental health clinic, and for the past three years, I've provided part-time psychiatric consultation services to Aroka Lifestyle Medicine based in Victoria, British Columbia. Now, when someone thinks of this topic, when we're thinking of psychiatry, f- diet and, and food, they're not the first things that pop into your mind, especially plant-based nutrition. So I'm curious, 
when did plant-based nutrition come into the picture for you? Well, quite a while ago, actually, I read Dr. Dean Ornish's program for reversing heart disease, which was published in 1990. And I was interested in the benefits of a low-fat diet for weight loss and cardiac health. And it was actually after that that my HDL was in the normal range for the first time since medical school. It was a treat to hear him speak at a very well-attended lecture during the 1993 American Psychiatric Association annual meeting in San Francisco, and quite a few times since. I've steadily moved into more whole food, plant-based nutrition since that time in my uh, own dietary choices and when asked for advice from patients, especially after attending lifestyle medicine conferences since 2012 and qualifying for the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine ABLM certification in 2017 when it was first offered. I wish that I'd paid more attention to his work earlier, having experienced both prostate cancer and a major heart attack in 2008, despite regular exercise and what many consider a healthy diet. Consistently following a whole food plant-based diet has led to a sustained weight loss of more than 30 pounds and a 50% drop in serum cholesterol levels. I enjoy what I eat and cooking at home. Now, you're well-versed in, in what's known as lifestyle psychiatry or uh, also known as nutritional psychiatry. Can you define what this is for listeners at home? Yes, um, the way I'll approach that is to say that uh, most of my education and experiences in general lifestyle medicine, starting with a Harvard program in 2013 uh, called Lifestyle Medicine Tools for Promoting Healthy Change, that's still given twice a year in June and December, and I'd highly recommend it. I joined the American College of Lifestyle Medicine that year. I've attended most of their annual meetings since. If we look at how ACLM defines lifestyle medicine, they do it this way. Lifestyle medicine is the use of evidence-based lifestyle therapeutic intervention, including a whole food plant predominant eating pattern, regular physical activity, restorative sleep, stress management, avoidance of risky substances, and positive social connection as a primary modality delivered by clinicians trained and certified in this specialty to prevent, treat, and often reverse chronic disease. So those ones um, make up what they call the six pillars of lifestyle medicine. And many would now add the seventh pillar that spending time in nature is a very worthwhile thing to do. As far as lifestyle psychiatry, that term is uh, first popularized when the first textbook on lifestyle psychiatry was published in 2019. It was multi-authored and edited by Dr. Douglas Nordsey, a clinical professor at Stanford. He presented at the American Psychiatric Association annual general meeting that year. Um, the focus of that book was primarily on the benefits of physical activity as a component of treatment for depression and schizophrenia. That's understandable as most of the research on lifestyle factors and mental illness have been on the role of physical activity. But the book is a little late on the nutrition aspects. The author was not yet certified by ABLM and still does not appear to be, although he has an invited, he was an invited presenter at ACLM's Lifestyle Medicine Conference in Orlando in 2019. Firth, Ward, and Stubbs in a 2019 editorial summarized how lifestyle psychiatry is evolving and the need to move from observational studies to more RCTs to assess the 
efficacy of various and combined lifestyle modification approaches that may enhance mental health uh, treatment outcomes. In a meta review of lifestyle psychiatry, the role of exercise, smoking, diet, and sleep in the prevention and treatment of mental disorders, the authors found a number of uh, standout findings. A, conversion evidence indicating the use of physical activity in primary prevention and clinical treatment across the spectrum of mental disorders. B, emerging evidence implicating tobacco smoking as a causal factor in onset of both common and severe mental illness. C, the need to clearly establish causal relations between dietary patterns and risk of mental illness and how diet should be best addressed within mental health care. And D, poor sleep as a risk factor for mental illness, although with further research required to understand the complex bidirectional relations and the benefits of non-pharmacological sleep-focused interventions. The potentially shared neurobiological pathways between multiple lifestyle factors and mental health are discussed along with the directions for future research and recommendations for the implementation of these findings at public health and clinic service levels. That's all very interesting. And I imagine, you know, what you do on a daily basis, it's one thing to, to review the data and explain the data to people, but it's another thing to actually put it into practice. So can you tell me about your role at a rogue lifestyle medicine clinic and how you actually go about incorporating diet and lifestyle into everything? Well, thank you for that question. It, it um, was partly sparked by discussions with Dr. Michael Lyon, who's a friend and colleague um, and was uh, chair of the nutrition committee of the Council on Health Promotion at Doctors of BC, which I used to chair. He is the medical director of the Obesity Medicine and Diabetes Institute in Coquitlam, BC. And he told me how many of their patients who had difficulty responding to treatment had adult ADHD. At AROGA, rather than general adult psychiatry consultations, I was interested in screening for ADHD, a history of adverse childhood experience, what are called ACEs, and or PTSD. These were often untreated, but treatable conditions that interfered with the patient's journey to better health. Last year, after reading the second edition of Treating Complex Traumatic Stress Disorder in Adults, I was particularly interested in Chapter 3 on the 30 Best Practices in the Psychotherapy of CTSD. With Dr. Christine Courtois' kind consent, I've used a condensation of that chapter for informed consent and treatment planning of patients with that condition. A search for the ITQ questionnaire will lead your listeners to more information about screening for CPTSD, which differs from PTSD and is recognized as a separate condition in ICD-11, that's the International Classification of Diseases, but not in the DSM-5-TR with the latest edition of that published just last month on March 18. So you can't have both diagnoses if you meet the diagnostic criteria for uh, CTSD, then that overrides the ones for PTSD. And PTSD is usually from facing a major life-threatening type of situation, whereas uh, CTSD or CPTSD is referred to both ways um, as more related to betrayal trauma that can be repeatedly, usually from childhood, 
but it can happen in adult times of life too. My work with patients explores the goals of whether, when, and how much they may wish to work in psychotherapy on trauma issues and or to use motivational interviewing approaches to achieve better lifestyle changes. Nutrition is a major focus of this, as it is in the certification exam for becoming a diplomat of the APLM's qualifying examination. It's quite common to identify adult ADHD and to discuss treatment options for that too. Interestingly, just this week, CADRA, that's the Canadian ADD Resource Alliance, announced that Prince Edward Island was the first province in Canada to fund treatment clinics for adult ADHD. Given Dr. Russell Barkley's recent publications about how untreated adult ADHD can shorten life expectancy by 15 years, as much as the impact of smoking, this deserves greater attention in healthcare. Yeah, absolutely, it does, and it's 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 great that we're that there's still studies that are coming out right now that are that are shining a light on these things that we've been in the dark about for so long. One thing that's been interesting to me, well, as as you've just explained, it's you know lifestyle medicine, so it it, it involves so many things: sleep, exercise, smoking. But in terms of what we actually eat and how that can affect our mood um, and mental health state, what kind of data do we have? if any, that actually links specific things that we eat and nutrition to our mental health. I know most people are probably aware of, of eating disorders, but maybe not the physiology of how what we eat can go on to impact our brains and how we think. There are several ways of looking at that. One way is to consider the overall physical needs of our body and providing a foundation for our brain health, optimizing functional capacity and prolonging health span. So health span is differentiated from lifespan in that it looks at the functional capacity and trying to maintain that during the years that we're alive. Minimizing the risks of non-communicable chronic disease, sometimes abbreviated NCD, will benefit the person and their loved ones. Epigenetics is also educating us on how dietary patterns can have an inter intergenerational effect. Research on diets is difficult to do as there are so many variables. You can do research on a closed metabolic ward, for instance, but that is over a limited time span. It doesn't show the long uh, time results of various exercise patterns. And also if there's a research on a Mediterranean diet, that is often favored, but covers a lot of ingredients, some that may not be quite as healthy as others, and some not follow the same way by others that uh, declare that they're following a Mediterranean diet. There is limited research on diet and mental health. Uh, Firth et al. in 2020 commented, no eligible meta-analyses of dietary interventions in the treatment of other mental disorders apart from ADHD were identified. And it was pretty limited with ADHD about uh, avoidance of food coloring and something that's called food limited diets where there's uh, only a restricted number of foods that are included and it was uh, not too uh, strong effect. Yeah, I can imagine doing a study on something like this specifically can be very difficult to do. Are there any randomized control trials or meta-analysis that, that we have on dietary, dietary patterns and depression specifically? Again, this is very limited. Marks et al. in 2020 
in their article, Diet and Depression, Exploring the Biological Mechanisms of Action, commented that the mechanisms of action associating diet with health outcomes are complex, multifaceted, interacting, and not restricted to any one biological pathway. Numerous pathways were identified through which diet could plausibly affect mental health. These include modulation of pathways involved in inflammation, oxidative stress, epigenetics, mitochondrial dysfunction, the gut microbiota, tryptophan, kinurenine metabolism, the HPA axis neurogenesis, and BDNF, epigenetics, and obesity, quite a list. However, the nascent nature of the nutritional psychiatry field to date means that the existing literature identified in this review is largely comprised of preclinical animal studies. What are some of the top nutrients or foods that we should be focusing on if we want to improve our mental health? I know you just kind of explained that it is difficult to look at mechanistic studies to, to see like to see just how foods impact our mental health, but we might have more in the way of observational studies that can show certain nutrients impacting our, our mental health. Well, it's best not to focus on macronutrients or specific foods or supplements, although something like Dr. Michael Gregor's Daily Dozen is a useful compass. I also endorse the advice of Dr. Will Bolshewitz, author of Fiber Fueled, that we should be aiming at 35 different foods per week in a rainbow of colors. So that's basically recognizing that the organisms in our gut have different appetites and we shouldn't all always feed them uh, one type of food because it's going to deprive others of what they need. When we take care of our gut health, there are many benefits, including a strong immune system, better heart and brain health, improved mood, healthy sleep, normalizing blood glucose and cholesterol levels and effective digestion. It may help prevent some cancers and autoimmune diseases too. Here's a quick information summary that I provide to those interested in understanding more about uh, whole food plant-based diet. The desirable level of protein in your diet is only 10 to 15%, preferably from plant sources. If you go higher than that, there is increased risk of cancers. The focus in whole food plant-based is vegetables and fruit with as little processing as possible and prepared with low fat, low salt, elimination of sugar, refined grains and oils, except what comes from small quantities of nuts, seeds, and avocado. Small condiment quantities of animal-based protein may be used for flavor or texture. This isn't a fad. It's what multiple scientific clinical studies recommend, and the evidence goes back for more than 50 years. It's much more a lifestyle choice than a diet. The benefits are in proportion to the degree that it's followed. And it's not the same as a vegan diet, which stringently avoids all foods and sometimes other products like leather that are derived from animals. The quantities of sugar, fat, salt may be unhealthy in some vegan foods. And I don't include it in that part, but that's not to say that uh, many people will choose this out of concerns for animal welfare and uh, global survival because of the advantages of going more plant-based. It also differs from a paleo diet, which although supporting the choice of unprocessed foods has an unhealthy level of protein intake, which carries higher risk of contributing to the development of cancers and inflammatory diseases. 
gluten-free diets, which are essential to those diagnosed with celiac disease and sometimes used unnecessarily by others, may contain unhealthy quantities of rice and rice flour that contain arsenic. Weekly quantity limits are especially important for children. Consumer reports indicates that this is more of a problem with rice sourced from the U.S. than from Asia. On a whole food, plant-based diet, people often lose weight, feel much better, don't feel hungry, all while reducing the risk of chronic disease and not uncommonly reversing type 2 diabetes. It may also be a benefit to some degree in type 1 diabetes. And that handout that I provide also has some links to some of Dr. Michael Greger's books and his website. Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn emphasizes the role of daily consumption of vegetable greens in preserving endothelial cell function. Those are the cells that line our coronary arteries, for instance, and how this can reverse even severe coronary artery disease. Like Dr. Ornish, he's been a pioneer in this area. Those on a whole food plant-based diet and many others may need to take a B12 supplement, preferably in the cyanocobalamin form. What about the opposite of what I just asked? How can certain foods or nutrients actually exacerbate mental health? I know it's often said in conversation that like fast food, energy drinks can have a negative impact on our mental health, but what kind of data do we actually have on this? Quality uh, data on that's pretty limited. The most important foods to avoid are sweetened and highly processed ones. Aiming for a nutrient-dense diet is much better for our health than choosing calorie-dense foods. And kind of along with that same question, and probably in the same conversation, we also hear a lot about inflammation. People talk about junk food and things like that. The word inflammation will pop up and free radicals. How do you look at these things from the field of psychiatry and our mental health? This was a common theme at the U.S. Mental Health Congress meetings a few years ago with discussion of folate supplementation and its benefits in the treatment of uh, refractory depression. I've not followed that specific approach as closely since. Chronic inflammation can be reduced by dietary changes. Following an anti-inflammatory diet reduces the risk of many illnesses, including depression and some cancers. You mentioned earlier in our conversation, fiber fuel. Uh, the new book that came out, I think just last year or the year before by Dr. Will Bolshevitz. Um, so big focus on fiber to go along in the microbiome. So to go along in on that track of thinking, I know serotonin is one of the neurotransmitters that help regulate our mood and our appetite. And some serotonin is produced in our, in our gastrointestinal tract. We're also seeing a lot of emerging data on the microbiome and how important it is for us to feed our, our gut bugs with a variety of healthy foods, like you said, eating 30 different, some foods a week is healthy. I want to know how our guts connect to our brains and how that relationship influences our mental health or can influence our mental health. Well, this is a fascinating and complex area that we're beginning to better understand. We don't have to know the details of how those brain gut connections work to better understand that gut health can be changed quickly by as little as one unhealthy meal. We've been rather brainwashed by corporate interest to believe that we need more protein in our diet and that animal protein is somehow more complete than that derived from plants, forgetting that plants were the source of those animals' protein content to begin with. The awareness is slowly changing, especially among younger folk, I think, 
and the role modeling of successful plant-based high-profile athletes is helping with that. North America is a continent whose population is much more likely to be fiber deficient than protein deficient. There's quite a good review article by Pearson Elvini in 2019, and just to highlight one comment from their summary, they said, overall, a picture of the gut microbiome playing a facilitating role between stress response, inflammation, and depression, and anxiety is emerging. Another uh, review by Mellon Mother et al. in 2018, the gut microbiome and mental health implications for anxiety and trauma-related disorders commented, we underscore the importance of microbiome science and gut microbiota in particular as emerging critical players in mental illness and maintenance of mental health. This new frontier of biological psychiatry and post-genomic medicine should be embraced by the mental health community as it plays an ever-increasing transformative role in integrative and holistic health research in the next decade. Now, this next question I have to ask because it's a hot topic and every year we see at least seven or eight headlines flash by on the news about this, whether it's good or bad for you, but, but coffee. There are so many studies on coffee. Like I said, one day it's good for you, the next day it's bad, but it seems that every other week, this new study, or there's a meta-analysis leans in a different direction. A lot of stuff I've seen in the past has actually looked at, at coffee and, and mood or depression and things like that. So what do we actually know about coffee and how it impacts our moods? Well, we know that uh, too much caffeine can worsen anxiety. It's something to exclude um, in anxiety-related diagnostic categories, such as panic disorder. Withdrawal symptoms are likely after stopping a four cups per day daily intake habit. And sleep disruption is common if it's consumed after uh, 3 p.m. Some people say earlier than that. Although not everyone is prone to that, perhaps because of genetic differences, research tells us. DSM-5 has a category for caffeine withdrawal. If listeners wish to dig deeper into this topic, they may wish to read or listen to the audiobook of Michael Pollan's book, Caffeine, including his account of how his writing stalled when he tried to abstain from coffee. And as an alternative to coffee, listeners might consider green tea. A systematic review by Mancini et al. in 2017 found that green tea has beneficial effects on cognition, mood, and human brain function. And it's not attributed to a single constituent of the beverage. They exemplified in the finding that beneficial green tea effects on cognition are observed under the combined influence of both caffeine, and L-theanine, whereas separate administration of either substance was found to have a lesser impact. Well, I might have to revisit my, um, my coffee uh, uh, intake then, because I definitely think I drink more than four cups and I drink more <laughs> after 3 p.m. What role do things like sleep, exercise, and stress management play into our mental health? We've been talking a lot about uh, diet and the microbiome and stuff. And you mentioned earlier in our conversation about the six pillars, you mentioned some of the studies that we have on, on this type of uh, topic, but lifestyle medicine, that's what you focus. And so let's, uh, you know, just briefly sleep exercise and stress management. How big of a deal are those things? They are a big deal. And so just to review what the six pillars are, those include nutrition, physical activity, sleep, good social connectedness, avoidance of risky substances, and methods of stress reduction. 
and many would now add spending time in nature during the physical activity as being a very beneficial thing to do. So the six pillars of lifestyle medicine support many health benefits, not just mental health. Deficient sleep and exercise will impair cognitive ability and also increase the risk of injury, including motor vehicle crashes. Exercise may be more important for maintaining cognitive brain function than it is for cardiovascular fitness and respiratory system fitness and weight loss. We're also learning a lot about the benefits of mindfulness-based stress reduction methods, and the research in that area is steadily growing. I want to hop over to another topic that um, people might not think of immediately when, when we talk about things like this, but food security. There are some people who really want to try to eat better, but they find it difficult to afford or manage given their socioeconomic factors. How does what you do uh, as a psychiatrist come into the picture when it comes to social inequities and things like this? That is an important concern, and I'm glad you've raised it. Whether it's the cost of food or of necessary prescribed medications, the patient can be quite reluctant to admit their financial challenges and the difficult choices that they must make for themselves and their family members every day. To widen the range of healthy food, we can consider food source preparation and reducing food waste. Healthy foods don't have to cost more, although some folks uh, live in Areas where fresh vegetables and fruit are extra expensive, especially with current inflation rates and supply chain problems. While more costly organic foods avoid pesticide residues, they're not essential to a healthier diet. Frozen foods can often be a good choice. If there's an option to grow your own greens in a window box, balcony, raised bed, or community garden, then that may help. Time is money too, and sometimes prepared foods that may promote faster meal preparation at home are a wise choice. For instance, lightly steaming a package of mixed salad greens will make it more digestible and keep it usable in the refrigerator for at least a week. Peeling and freezing ripe bananas, putting them in portion bags, provides a healthy dessert that can be eaten as it is or dusted with cinnamon and or cacao powder. Peeling an orange and storing it in the refrigerator will keep it longer than in the fruit bowl where it may develop green mold. Batch cooking of dried beans and grains on a weekend provides ingredients for a Buddha bowl throughout the week. I'm a fan of the Instant Pot and its role in promoting faster, energy-efficient food preparation of healthy foods. And I have a goal of making some YouTube videos along those lines. While it's a $100 plus piece of kitchen equipment, it may replace several others like a slow cooker, rice cooker, steamer, etc., because of its multi-purpose function. You can also cook in it and leave it without it getting, uh, it spoiling the, the food and while you're busy with other activities. And it's good to reflect on how much you can save by food preservation and increased cooking at home. That should be part of the equation about whether or not it's a prudent purchase. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. You make a lot of really good points in that last bit there. Um, not just for people who might have, I think, financial hardship, but in general, anyone who wants to switch over and maybe try a, a whole food plant-based diet, there's a bunch of information that you just said that's really helpful for people switching over that might not be you know, familiar with this type of diet. Switching topics, I want to ask about 
as we age? Um, are there certain things we ought to pay special attention to when it comes to diet and lifestyle if we want to maintain our mental health as we grow older? Physical activity for cognitive preservation is important. It's never too late to experience the benefits from a change to a healthier diet, too. Dr. Ornish observed that among his research subjects, a man in his mid-70s achieved the greatest positive change from his consistent application of the science-based principles. I remember him saying that at the presentation in 1993, and at presentations since then, he's continued to make that point. Sarcopenia, which is the name for the typical age-related wasting of skeletal muscle, may be slowed and to some extent reversed by resistance exercise. Twice a week is advised. Balance exercises reduce the risks of falls and associated hip fractures or brain injury. I admit that I find a harder time doing resistance and balance exercises consistently than in doing aerobic exercise. It's wise to leave ladder work to younger folks. I know too many sad stories of those that did not. And we need to consider our fitness to drive and plan for retirement from driving before it endangers our own or others' safety. Despite research that shows that life expectancy exceeds driving expectancy by 9.4 years for women and 6.2 years for men, most current drivers don't plan for driving cessation. I think there's a place there for uh, seniors to do a contract with their children and grandchildren in the same way they talk about contracts with teenagers about avoiding uh, alcohol and fair driving and uh, listening to the concerns and retiring and finding uh, safer means of transportation if there's a cognitive decline or physical disability that precludes safe driving. Dr. Gillespie, it's been a real pleasure um, having this conversation with you and I've learned a lot and uh, it's kind of, you know, opened the door to a whole new field of plant-based nutrition and how it impacts our, our mental health that, that I was unaware of. And I hope our listeners learned a lot too. Before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you one more question let's say, you know, someone's listening to this conversation and they've been inspired by it and they want to eat better and exercise and go to sleep earlier. Saying it is one thing, doing it is another. So do you have any basic tips for people listening who, who actually want to, you know, wake up tomorrow and make those changes that can also impact uh, positively their mental health? Well, thank you for those kind words and that question, Clint. Much of making and sustaining healthy changes has to do with habit recognition clarifying your why. In other words, what's the reason that is motivating you to make these changes? So for former President Bill Clinton, it was wanting to be around for uh, Chelsea's wedding. And he was uh, actually advised by Dean Ornish about the changes in the diet and has uh, remained pretty healthy and active since that time. So it also has to do with deciding what habit changes will help you on your journey to better health. Tracking those positive changes, whether it be by pencil and paper, a wrist-worn device that connects to a log on a computer or smartphone, or an application that tracks your streaks like Calm can be helpful in maintaining motivation. It's a personal decision whether to make intensive lifestyle changes or to do that incrementally. What's clear from the work of Dr. Ornish and others is that the more you change, the greater the benefit. The role of your healthcare provider is now more of being a coach, a guide on the side, not the sage on the stage in patient-centered care. That's where motivational interviewing approaches and helping patients or clients to establish SMART goals is very helpful. 
The SMART in the SMART Goals acronym stands for Specific, Measurable, Achievable, Relevant, and Time-Bound. Defining these parameters as they pertain to your long-term goals helps to ensure that your objectives are reached within a reasonable time frame. Each goal is the foundation for the next one. And when someone's not successful at one goal, they can try again until they reach that before they uh, proceed. Thank you to you, Clint, and to your listeners for providing this opportunity to speak with you. Absolutely. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you, and I hope to speak with you again down the road. Thank you again. This podcast featured royalty-free music from bensound.com. A very special thanks to our guests for speaking with us and sharing their insights. And of course, thank you for listening. The Plant-Based Canada podcast is an initiative of the group Plant-Based Canada, which aims to educate the public and health professionals on the evidence-based benefits of plant-based whole food nutrition for individual and planetary health. To learn more about the show, visit our website, www.plantbasedcanada.org, and stay up to date by following us on Instagram and Facebook at plantbasedcanada.org and our Plant-Based Canada YouTube channel. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts.